Hear the word of the Lord from John 13, 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already entered, put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Oh, that was nice. Thank you for that. My name is Steve. Uh, you may know me from the Good Friday service. I was uh, every angry Jewish high priest that day. Um, uh, I talked to my kids afterwards, and they said, Dad, you were way too scary when you were talking. I said, well, that was kind of the point. They were really angry, and they were kind of scary that way. And they go, oh, well, then good job, Dad. That's good. So, so that was nice. <laughs> uh, today, we are continuing our fundamental series uh, where we're really exploring the foundation of our church. What makes Sacred City Sacred City, right? So uh, we've been talking about identities the last couple of weeks. We went through the family identity and the missionary identity. Today, we are discussing the servant identity. So let me pray for us, and we'll dive into this today. Lord, uh, we, we come before you today. Uh, we're all bringing stuff in. Uh, we're, bringing, um, we're bringing hurt. We're bringing pain. We're bringing exhaustion. We're bringing distraction, we're bringing um, a, a sense of, of guilt, uh, whatever it may be, Lord, we're bringing all of that here to this moment. And I pray that we wouldn't hide those things from you, Lord, that we would set them out and lay them at your feet, Lord, that we'd open our hands to you this morning. Lord, I believe that there's something in here for all of us in your word today. So Lord, I pray you would open our hearts and our minds and our ears. Lord, let us zero in on this moment right here. Don't let us think about what we're doing afterwards or what we're having for lunch, but Lord, let us be here right now with you. Lord, speak, uh, speak to us through your word. Speak through me, Lord. Let my words be your words. Lord, may you be glorified through all that we're doing this morning. We ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen. 
So today we're exploring one of the more fascinating and I think intimate moments in Jesus' ministry. Right? On one side of Jesus' life, you have this, the fury of ministry. Right? He's, he's healing people. Miracles were performed. Right? The dead are raised to life. Tables are flipped. You have the anger and vitriol of the Pharisees. On the other side, you have the devastation of Good Friday and the cross. You have the glory of Easter and the resurrection. And in between these two spectrums sits this unique and tender moment between Jesus and those closest to him. Right, Jesus, aware that his time with his disciples was coming to a close, opts to punctuate his ministry by demonstrating what true servanthood looks like. But he doesn't cook them a meal. He doesn't mow their yard. He doesn't help them build a deck. He washes their feet. Now raise your hand if you ever wash the feet of your house guests when they come over. We got some, yeah. <laughs> Few of you, thank you. That's awesome. Right? Not many do this. That's not, it's not common here with us. But with, for the people in Jesus' time, this was a common occurrence. Right? It was customary that the lowest servant of the house would wash the feet of all the guests as they came into the home. This is especially true for a more formal meal like this one. And it makes sense. Right? First, they spend all day wearing sandals. Right, they're walking around. Their feet are dirty. Feet are dusty. And there's animals walking around. And these donkeys and cows and goats, they're, they're pooping on the ground. So it's likely they're walking into this meal with just nasty, nasty feet. And some of you are like, all right, I'm not to listen anymore. <laughs> right? Nasty feet. And second, they weren't sitting on a kitchen table where you can hide, kind of hide your feet. Right? Nice chairs. This is nice. You can put them all right, right under the table. No, they're sitting at these low U-shaped tables, like reclining on, on pillows. I can imagine like someone like get their feet up, like just kind of hanging out. Right, you can see their feet and all their stinky glory. It's right there for everyone to see. So it made sense. We should probably wash these up. Make the kids wash their hands before they eat dinner. Let's also wash the feet. But for whatever reason, that night the customary foot washing didn't take place. I can imagine the disciples arriving with Jesus and, you know, they've had a long day and they're looking for that lowly servant. Um, where'd he go? We're not finding anybody. So now the conversation shifts to, well, uh, who's going to wash our feet? You? No, 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 not me. It's probably this guy. <laughs> not, I wouldn't do that. That's not, you should do that, though. Yeah, you, you, you should wash the feet because I'm not doing that. Right, they're pointing at each other and each one denying the privilege of washing one another's feet. Sure, every one of them would gladly wash Jesus' feet. If Jesus said, hey, guys, can you wash my feet? Everyone would be diving at his feet. I got you. But if you wash Jesus' feet, that'll also mean you have to wash everybody else's feet. And for these people, man, to admit that I'm going to do that is to admit a level of inferiority that I just I can't possibly stomach. This was a new conversation among the disciples. There's a moment before this meal that Matthew uh, describes in his gospel where the, the mom of James and John came and asked Jesus if they could be the best disciples. Because there's nothing more empowering in life than uh, um, having your mom come ask your boss for a promotion, right? Um, feel so good, mom does that. 
Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28 says this. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, well, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom I've been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, the other disciples, they were indignant at the other two brothers. Like, seriously, your mom? This is nice. But Jesus called them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I mean, first off, mom, seriously, no chill? Come on, help me out here, mom, <laughs> right? But this kind of thing mattered to the disciples. They saw Jesus and said, man, he's going to have a great kingdom. I want to be part of that. I'm going to get on the ground level, like a pyramid scheme. This is going to be great. I'll get right there, and then it will be awesome. Let me be, like, number, number two, number two. Right, for them, status and superiority mattered. And Jesus hears his argument, shakes his head, and says, you don't get it. You don't get it. If you want to be great, you first have to be a servant. So Jesus points himself out as a prime example. He's like, I didn't come to be waited on like some king like where he's like dangling grapes over my face. Like, no, I'm not that kind of king. But I'm here to get into the muck and dirt with you all and serve you with everything I've got, even my very life. Unfortunately, this teaching falls on deaf ears because in Luke's gospel, it says that at this very same meal we're talking about, they were still arguing about who's the best. Well, who's the greatest? What are you the greatest? That's what, of course, they're arguing about this, so no one's going to want to wash each other's feet because I would admit that I'm not that great. So it's with this backdrop that Jesus rises to serve his disciples by washing their feet. And in doing so, he paints a vivid picture of what true service looks like. But here's where a sermon like this can be dangerous for you and me. If we simply focus on how to serve better, we will have missed the point completely. If you feel charged up, yeah, I want to go serve now. Let's go do things. You've missed it. It'd be easy to start like list. Here's 10 ways. Start serving better um, and start with this recipe and make sure you go over here before you know, the sunrise so you get the shovel walk. This would be great. Or you have all you achiever types, like, yeah, 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 I'm going to go do this. I'm going to outserve the guy next to me. This is going to be great. It'd be really easy to simply do that. If we only talk about service divorced from identity, then we've lost our distinction and uniqueness as the church and the world when it comes to service. And here's why. Almost everyone in the world is serving right now. There's people serving right now outside of the church who aren't Christians at all. I think about it. We could all leave right now. We can go build a house with Habitat for Humanity. Well, you could work at John Deere. I'm sure there's like service days where everyone like, instead of wearing your suit, you show up in your jeans and you, you get to work for a couple hours. And everyone's like, yeah, we did it. We nailed it. We served everybody. And I get back to work and make tractors. Like, you work at service days, right? National Honor Society, to prove how smart you are, you have to do community service hours, <laughs> Right? 
You can go clean litter boxes at the animal shelter and hold the puppies. This is great. This is nice. You can even break the law today and be forced into community service. Right? Everyone is serving, even criminals. Almost every religion emphasizes some form of service. And our culture says, if you want to be a nice person, you should do something for somebody. That would be nice. So if we simply get out and serve harder, we'd be entering the same stream as the rest of the world. But is service in our world and culture today the same thing that Jesus is talking about? I think there's three presuppositions that our our culture and world kind of has about service that changes what it looks like from what Jesus is talking about. The first presupposition is this, that service is only performed by people that have it all together. All right, the only people that serve in our world today are those who have a degree of agency in their life. I'm in control. I, can, you know, I, have, I have everything I need. I have all the money I need. I have the power I need. I have uh, time. I have health. And so I'm going I'm to give back a little bit. I'm, I am set. So I can give to those who don't have it. I, I can only serve because I'm fully capable of doing so. Service in this presupposition kind of becomes like a status symbol. Right? Because I'm so, so I'm pretty good. I can now serve. I've arrived. Right? I can take a picture of me holding that cute puppy and put it on Instagram. It'll be great. Everyone will know I'm serving. The second presupposition we have from the world that says, uh, that makes it different, is that service is only for those who don't have it together. Right? The world says we only serve those who can't serve themselves. Right? These people are, are in some way broken. Right? They don't have agency. They don't have time. They don't have power. They don't have money. So we pity these people. We feel bad for them. So we serve them as a reminder um, that, hey, you know what? We have it pretty good. And these poor folks, man, let's go help them out. Furthermore, it wouldn't do to, for us to be served as people who have it together to be served. Are you kidding me? Because you know that success equals self-sufficiency. I can take care of myself. So I'm not going to be served. And the last presupposition we have, the third one in our world today, is that service is something you go and do. I'm going to go and, and you know, I'm going to make this happen. I have that service day, right? I'm the, the, the animal shelter. I'm going to go serve here, do what I need to do, and I'm going to get out of that and re-enter my world. Right, this complete like, separation of self. Like I'm, I serve over here, and the rest of the world, I'm just doing my own thing here. It doesn't shape who we are, like the service in this capacity. It doesn't change how we think. It doesn't help us make decisions. It's a moment in time and nothing more. It says nothing about our identity, who we are. And this is where we need to start. If we want to reclaim service as uniquely Christian, we need to do so through identity. As we've been discussing, identity must always precede behavior. Okay, we, is, identity isn't something we behave into, it's something we behave out of, right? So instead of simply trying to serve harder, we need to really understand the identity behind the behavior. If you want to serve well, the first move isn't outward action. I'm going to go and do something, but it's actual, actually inward renewal. I would say like this, Christians aren't called to simply serve. Christians are called to be servants first. 
Then as we receive this servant identity from God, out of it will birth service unlike anything the world experiences today. So I want to explore this and look at three truths about the servant identity that we need to embrace to really live out of this identity. So let's explore this by working through the passage. So if you have your Bible, let's open it up to John chapter 13, and let's take a look at this. The first truth we see is that servants must remember who gives them their identity. All right, let's check this out. John 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Right, this was it. This was Jesus' culminating moment of his earthly ministry. In 24 hours, Jesus would be hanging on a cross for the sins of all mankind. In many ways, this meal was like the last meal on death row. This was it. Butterflies and all, tension and all. This was the moment. And it's during this occasion that his disciples thought, everything more ignorant of the moment, they, they decide, we're going to argue about who's best. Never mind the three years of teaching and example Jesus showed them. Never mind the countless miracles witnessed and the bond of brotherhood and love in the name of Jesus they all felt amongst each other. Tonight, we argue about superiority. We argue about who's the best. You can imagine the barbs thrown back and forth. And as Jesus sat amongst his disciples, listening to them jockey for positional authority amongst each other, wondering who's the best, and as Jesus ponders the gravity of the moments that are to come, his heart, it says, overflowed with love for them. Let's keep reading here. During the supper when the devil, this is verse 2, during the supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that, that had been wrapped around him. As the disciples ponder who will be the foolish and shameful one that would wash the other's feet, Jesus, Savior of the world, stands, rises from supper, stands before the bickering and prideful disciples, and assumes the posture of the lowest of lowly servants. You can imagine this moment hitting the disciples like a ton of bricks. Jesus. Rendering their arguments into silence. Jesus, in a stunning display of tenderness, carefully takes his shirt off, lays it aside, exposing his chest, and fashions a towel around his waist, tying it in a way normally reserved only for slaves in this time, begins to wash their gross, disgusting feet. There's two things to note here. The first one is that Jesus washed Judas's feet. I don't know if you're aware of this, like Judas betrays Jesus. It says in verse 11 that Jesus knew who was going to portray him. As Jesus filled this basin with water and contemplated washing his disciples' feet, he sat before Judas and washed his feet too. 
He didn't stop him. He didn't look at Jesus or Judas and be like, fine, I'm going to wash your feet too, right? No, his heart broke for Judas too. And Jesus washed the feet of the guy trying to get him nailed to a cross. This cuts to the core. I've been just thinking about that all week long. This idea that Judas, the enemy of enemy for, 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 for Jesus in this moment here, gets his feet washed. Think of our world right now. Think of yourself, maybe. Who's prepared to serve their enemies in this way? And not just someone annoying, like someone like, oh, he wrote something stupid on Facebook. This is, oh, I'm, I'm out of this. Log off. But someone who wants you dead to go and serve them yet. Jesus didn't cherry pick who he served, but out of his servant identity served all who would come. And the second thing we see here is that Jesus served out of a settledness in his heart. There was a sense of security in how Jesus acted. He knew who he was. It says that Jesus washed the feet of the disciples knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. That everything was working out exactly as anticipated. And not only that, but that his identity as the Son of God was secure and nothing was going to take that away. He's returning to the Father. This, okay, everything's set for me. So Jesus could serve someone like Judas or any of the other disciples because doing so wasn't going to change who he was either way. Embarrassing or not, convenient or not, intimate or not, it wasn't going to change. His identity was secure. He had a settledness in his heart. He can serve confidently because he is known and loved by the Father. Do you have a settledness like this today? Do you feel that sense of security in your soul that says nothing can change who I am because I am loved by the Father? Or are you anxiously chasing, striving to prove your worth at every turn? See, when we serve people without this settledness, what happens is that serving then becomes a means to an end, and that end is our own end. Right, maybe it's that feeling of accomplishment you're, you're looking for, that sense of satisfaction. You're looking for that self-worth. Or maybe it's to look good. Right, you want to get that puppy picture out there. It makes you look good. You want to gain that status. You want to feel better about yourself, maybe. Either way, serving without that subtleness is centered on you first and foremost. And when this happens, it actually impacts how we serve because we tend to make service then Super easy on ourselves. If it's about me, I'm taking the path of least resistance. I'm going I'm to serve on my own time, right? By my choosing. I'm going to make sure I'm serving at, at my level of comfort. I don't want to be too hard. It's just, I'm already giving up so much, so let's just keep it real simple. Give me the minimum dosage for maximum personal Impact, please. Never mind that our service is neutered and rendered ineffective when we do that. Just give me what I want. But when we remember that God gives us our identity 
and that nothing can take that away from us, we're suddenly free from chasing self-worth. We're free from chasing identity. We can just rest in who we are. All right, just as Jesus knew that the Father had given him all things and that he was returning to him, we can have confidence that Jesus himself is sitting at the right hand of the Father at this very moment and that he has all things in his hands and nothing can take that from him and therefore nothing can take that from us. So with confidence and boldness, we can serve without fear and without trepidation. We can abandon ourselves to the cause and to those around us because we trust that Jesus is holding everything together and nothing will change no matter what happens. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can serve with confidence and we can serve to the ends of the earth because who we are is secure. Nothing can take that from us. And it leads us to our next truth. Servants must receive the gift of service with humility and thankfulness. Let's read on here in John chapter 13, starting with verse 6 this time. He came, Jesus came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, Do you wash my feet? What? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. (laughs) Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, Peter, you have no share with me. You have no part of me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the only one who has bathed, the only one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him, right, Judas. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Oh, Peter. Peter reminds me of a, like a, a little puppy learning how to run for the first time. Like, you're just, ah, just, and his feet like splat out, he runs into the wall, right? And he's just gangler like a baby giraffe. Just so excited, youthful exuberance. He looks at Jesus, his Lord and teacher, washing his feet, and he's like, this, this is not possible. This is not what we decided as disciples, that Jesus would be the one washing our feet. We can't do this. Right, he looks at that and says, no, 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 no. I should be as Peter, I, I should be washing your feet, not like this. So in all of Peter's humility, and youthful exuberance, and great desire to please Jesus, he looks Jesus right in the eyes. And he says, Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. What in the world, Peter, what are you doing? In an effort to display humility and self-sufficiency, Peter outright rejects Jesus. Do you see that today? He's trying to be nice. He's pleasant. Jesus, of, of, of course you can't be dead, so no thank you, Jesus. Stay away from me. Well, Jesus capitalizes on this moment, pointing out the connection. Peter, if you can't even receive me right now washing your feet, how in the world do you expect to receive me when I ask for your very life? 
So puppy Peter, oh, realizing his foolishness, then turns to Jesus and says, great, Jesus, my feet aren't enough, you fool. Wash everything, wash my head, wash my hands. A moment ago, Peter was rejecting Jesus, telling him that, hey, you're just not doing, you're doing too much, Jesus, back off. And now he's telling Jesus, hey, you're just not doing enough. Peter, relax. Peter operates with this humility on the surface. Maybe that resonates with you, right? This, this humility on the surface, but deeply rooted within him is this hidden pride. It's pride that says, I'm gonna kindly and politely refuse the blessing and service of my Lord Jesus. William Temple, an Anglican priest from the early 1900s said that man's humility does not begin with the giving of service. It begins with the readiness to receive it. All right, do you hear me today? It's not, you're not showing humility by your ability to serve. It's how you receive service. There are some of you in this room that it really resonates with you. You look at Peter and go, yeah, that's me. Right, maybe you understand the danger of pride. And you're looking at that and going, man, I, I know what this does to the soul, so I'm avoiding pride. So you carry yourself with humility. Right? You're not thinking of yourself as better than anybody else. You don't get carried away on social media. Right? With the, the, uh, you're really avoiding the deadly self-promotion that uh, makes you look cooler than you actually are. Right? Uh, you're, I'm going to take on all the, give me the, the trash. I'll take all the menial tasks, the things that only servants do. I'll do all those things. It'll be great because it's good to serve with humility. But the moment someone offers to serve you, in the same humility, you kindly and politely turn them down. No thanks, I'm good. Or better yet, you don't ever, ever dare admit when you actually need help or when you're struggling because it just wouldn't do to look weak. I'm avoiding all of that. So you hold on to it, refusing to burden others with your weakness and your pain and your struggle. Here's the thing, it doesn't change the truth of your need. Just because you like will away from it, like, no, I don't need help. It doesn't change, you actually still need help. It just denies how God may want to bless you and solve that problem. In your faux humility, or fomility, all right? You're only masking the true pride deep down within you, which says, I don't need your help because I can do it on my own. To be served, we need to admit in some way that I'm just not good enough. Right? To allow someone else to help me and to serve me is seen as borderline irresponsible. Right? I've done something wrong if I need help. Right? Maybe I can't handle my business, or right? I'm some kind of failure. Even nicer than that, you say, well, there's other people struggling more than I am, so let, why don't you help them instead? I'm okay right now. I help them. Either way, we're saying I can control my own narrative. I'm in charge. See, I think how you receive service says a lot about what you think God is like. 
There's a common phrase tossed around Christian circles. Maybe you like this one or you've heard this one. It says, God helps those who help themselves. And in 2011, Barna did a survey and found that this phrase was considered by, uh, by people to be one of the most well-known and popular Bible verses out there. <laughs> this is not a Bible verse. This is not in the Bible. This phrase is nowhere to be found. I would say, go look for it, but we'd be here forever because you won't be able to find it. In many ways, this phrase even borderlines on heresy with this anti-grace sentiment, right? But we accept it as true. We readily pass this along because we like the idea behind it that God will love me more if I simply work it out myself. If I just take it all on myself. But in other words, I can, I can, if I just work hard enough, I can outwork my need to be served. And I can become self-sufficient. If I work hard enough, I can overcome my sin. And you know what? Then I don't need God. We like that phrase because we think that in the end, we could be our own God. This is not what God is like. This is not who God is. God is not some cruel boss who's looking at your worldly success and your ability to avoid any kind of service or help as something that's admirable. He's not saying, good for you. Rather, he sees how messed up you are. He sees our sin. And he sends his son, Jesus, to save you from yourself. Maybe a better way to say this phrase is, God helps those who readily admit that they cannot help themselves. Right, that they would stand in, in full realization of their sin and say, I have nothing to offer here. I need help. Our sin is too great for us to overcome by good deeds and a cheerful demeanor. Right? That we would admit our need for a savior. And that nothing we can do on our own will change that. See, when we refuse the help of others, when we hide our vulnerability and our brokenness from those willing to serve you, it's like looking at Jesus and the blessing that God wants to give you and saying, no thanks, I'm good. See, when Peter turns down Jesus in this moment, Jesus reminds him that if he wants a part of this kingdom, if he wants to be a part of Jesus, it doesn't start with Peter's faux humility or paying some kind of penance or doing something, right? It's to simply receive Jesus. And that's it. That's it. That truth will kill some of you achievers. Right? Some of you are like, no, I can control myself. I can be in charge. That'll kill some of you to hear that. That all you do the first move is just to receive him. Praise God that Jesus didn't look Peter square in the eye and say, Peter, if you don't have a certain degree of holiness, you can't have a part of me. Praise God, he didn't say, if you aren't a Bible expert, no share with me. If you aren't a great person already, no share with me. He didn't say, if your family isn't perfect, if you aren't able to hide your sin, if you don't have your life put together and you have no share with me, thank God he didn't say that. See, sharing in Jesus begins not with you having to achieve something or do something on your own, but simply receiving the gift of grace that he is offering you. Man, there's so many of us sitting in this room today that are just exhausted. 
just tired, man. It's, it's something that comes up in our MC a lot. We are just tired of chasing, seeking out, of striving. There's so much happening in our world today that to simply, like, I can do it all myself. It's, it's, it's exhausting. We're holding on so much. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give, give you rest. If someone gives you something, you must receive it. You must receive it. Can you receive him today? Can you humble yourself enough to see that you bring nothing of value into this relationship, but you're just yourself, stripped bare, no pride, no pretense, and yet you are still loved more than you can imagine? For when you do those things, when you can fully receive the gift of grace Jesus offers you, you can receive others in the same way. You can see the gift of someone helping you and serving you with joy and thankfulness. Say, yes, this is what I need. Thank you, Jesus, for this. It leads us to our last truth. Servants must respond to the example of their Savior by practically serving others. Let's look at the rest of John chapter 13 here, starting with verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done, for you, or done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. See, Jesus, after washing their feet, tells them, this is who I am. Right? You're right to call me teacher and Lord. Absolutely, you're spot on. But I'm not the teacher and Lord that builds a castle and a kingdom with brute force, with vengeance and anger. But as a servant king, I build a kingdom by offering myself for the sake of the world. And if you want to follow me as your Lord, if you want to have a part of this and walk in my footsteps, this is how you're going to do it. F.F. Bruce, a, a biblical scholar, described it like this. He said, the form of God was not exchanged for the form of a servant. Right? This wasn't like a play thing, right? It was revealed in the form of a servant. In the washing of their feet, the disciples, though they did not understand it at the time, saw a rare unfolding of the authority and glory of the incarnate word and a rare declaration of the character of the Father himself. Right, Jesus was quick to emphasize that this wasn't some fun corporate team building event. Right, I'm just washing everyone's feet and we'll learn about humility and we'll go back to our cubicles, right? Where Jesus isn't playing a game where he's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pretend I'm a servant, but I'll go back to being the king and Lord and, and, and you know, Lord of everything after this. He's like, no, 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 no. Jesus as a servant here is the very essence of who he is. It's almost as if Jesus was telling his disciples, if you want to understand the cross in 24 hours, you need to understand what I've done for you right here in this moment. 
It's what this whole thing has been about. We read this in the Profession of Faith. It bears repeating here. Paul describes what that looks like in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was taking in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is a servant. He's not playing one. Right? This is what it's all been about, and if this is who Jesus is, then we ought to be the same. And a call back to the Beatitudes, Jesus says, if you understand this servant reality, blessed are you if you practically live it out. Right? If, if you want that flourishing life, if you want to man, really feel like you're, you're, you're actually winning and making it happen, you'll live it if you respond to Jesus' example by serving others in the same way. Right? This isn't just some theory. Right, this isn't like, oh, this, that's nice. I should be a servant. All right, see you later, Jesus. Like, no, this is it. This is what we're talking about. If you want to live that flourishing life, you will live out by practically serving people. But do you see the progression here? As you remember your identity and who gives that to you, and after you joyfully receive Jesus and the gift of service from others, you're actually ready to respond now. Right? That inward renewal has happened. You're, you're thankful for what God has done. Right? You remember Jesus. You remember what he's done for us. You say, yes, this is what it means. Right? I'm thankful. I'm joyful. And that leads us to worship. And as we worship, this gratitude pours out of us. Love pours out of us. And worship then leads us to action. It leads us to say that of all the things that happen out of our gratitude and love for Jesus, it overflows onto our coworkers, into our friends, our family, our neighbors. Out of this gratitude and thankfulness of what Jesus has done for us, we respond. So when we respond in service, I would say you're actually not even responding to people's needs. Like you see them and you're practically doing that. What you're actually responding to is the work of Jesus in your life. Right? It's almost as like those people aren't even there. Yes, you are serving a real, like, flesh and bones person, but what you're actually doing is responding to what Jesus is doing in your life. It's only at that point, when you arrive at that point, that you can serve well. Now, for those who are like big list people and want those practical steps, like, okay, now what? This, I would break this down into four R's, okay? If you want to serve well, you need to remember. You need to remember. Remember that you receive your identity from God alone. Remember that you bring nothing into this relationship but broken, our broken sinful selves, yet you are fully and infinitely loved. All right? Second thing we want to do is repent. We need to repent of our faux humility. Right? We need to remember, repent of refusing to be served for the sake of trying to be someone you aren't. We need to repent of trying to control my own narrative. Right? And the third thing we have is we want to receive we need to receive the truth that the first move in relationship with Jesus is to do nothing but receive him, right? And now to receive others, offer to help and serve you with thankfulness and joy. 
And the fourth thing we want to do is finally we want to respond. Okay, that's when you respond. Respond with a heart that's overflowing with gratitude. We respond in service that matches the servant identity of Jesus. Now, as we close today, I want to leave you today with a picture of the love that Jesus has for his people. F.B. Meyer, a British pastor and evangelist in the late 1800s, he wrote this incredibly moving commentary on the tenderness and love Jesus displayed here in this moment. And I, I just, it just struck me all week long. And I want to share it with you because um, it just resonates in my, in my heart and my soul. Like, man, this is what, this is what Jesus is like. So it's a little bit longer, so listen with me on this one and hang in there. It was because these men were Christ's own that the full passion of his heart set in towards them, and he loved them to the utmost bound. That is, the tides filled the capacity of the ocean bed of possibility. It was bathed in the sense of his divine origin and mission. The curtain was waxing very thin. It was a moment of vision, There had swept across his soul a realization of the full meaning of his approaching triumph. Jesus looked back and was hardly conscious of the manger where the horned oxen fed, of the lowly birth, of the obscure years, and the sublime conception that he had come forth from God. Jesus looked forward and was hardly conscious of the cross, the nail, the thorn crown, and the spear because of the sublime consciousness that he was stepping back to go to the Father with whom he realized his identity. He looked on through the coming weeks and knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. And if for a moment he stooped, as we see he did, to the form of a servant, it was not because of any failure to recognize his high dignity and mission, but he does so with the sense of God had quick on his soul. The love which went out towards this little group of men had deity in it. It was the love of the throne, of the glory he had with the Father before the worlds were, of that which now fills the bosom of his ascended and glorified nature. Church, Jesus loves us. He loves you. This is our God. He's the one who stares down the hellish reality of the cross and opts to wash our feet in the meantime. This is our God, the one who looks at his betrayer, Judas, and knows it's going to happen and still washes his feet. This is our God. We don't deserve him. And we try to run away from him, but he loves us plain and simple. So church, your ability to serve well is not dependent, and it will never be because of your ability to perform or to cook a great meal have a clean house, to carry heavy furniture, give the most money. It's never going to depend on those things. It's how well you remember and receive the great love that Jesus is offering you. That in light of all your sin and failure, Jesus looked upon you with great tenderness and served you when you didn't deserve it. So as you leave here today, go not with a desire to simply serve better but to responsively live out of your identity as servant first, to remember what Jesus has done and to receive him. Let's come to the table this morning. Don't just take the cup. Receive it. Receive Jesus this morning. And as you eat the bread and drink the cup, remember what Jesus has done for you. And let your service then be marked and shaped by the servant king who gave everything for you. And pray for us.
Lord, there are some of us, maybe all of us, that are here in this room, just tired and exhausted. They're striving and striving and striving, and they're, they're, they're I'm so tired, but when you come to help them and serve them by, by having a neighbor or a friend or MC member come by and say, how can I help you? Or saying, no, 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 I don't need any help. I'm still tired, but I can handle this myself. Or there's some of us like that today, and some of us need to put that to death and realize that as we stiff-arm those people wanting to help us, it's like stiff-arming you, Jesus. It's trying to say that I don't need your grace because I can, I can outwill my sin. And Lord, we can't. So Lord, let us remember this morning that you have given everything for us. That our identity comes from you and that's secure. That we can receive all sorts of, of service and help with thankfulness and joy. That we can turn that out and, and respond with service ourselves. And that's, that's what makes, a, 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 I think, a pretty cool church is when people are... are repeating that cycle over and over again, offering to serve out, out of a responsiveness to what Jesus has done and receiving that with thankfulness and joy because of what you offer us by your grace. So let us be a church like that, Lord. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we ask all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.